Welcome to Funding the Future, a special edition of Category Visionaries, where instead of interviewing founders, we interview the VCs and angel investors that back them with capital, resources, and advice. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Dan Ahrens, co-founder and managing partner of Left Lane Capital. Dan, thanks for chatting with me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. No problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are, a bit more about your background, and really just how you made your way into the world of venture? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a co-founder and managing partner of Left Lane Capital. And my journey to venture really started in my first job out of school, actually. So graduating college, like a lot of people, had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. Knew I liked working with people, liked solving problems. So I found my way over to management consulting. Now, management consulting, not necessarily the closest thing to venture capital, but I got to work on this one project that was a real turning point for me. So I was about 24, 25, had the chance to create, develop, and roll out and measure a mobile application for a mobile workforce for one of our enterprise clients. And so was pretty young, had the chance to really see the entire life cycle of development through implementation, spent several winter months riding around mostly cold climates and trying to work with a much more experienced workforce who is somewhat set in their ways to ultimately use this application. And I loved that process. I knew at that point that I wanted to move into something that was much more technology focused. I didn't necessarily love the bureaucracy of developing something in a larger company. So knew I wanted to go early stage, knew I wanted to move into technology. I found my way over to venture about a year or so after that, had the chance to move over to Insight Partners, where I got to work on really the whole value chain of venture capital from new deals to diligence, had the chance to sit on a couple of boards and really work with founders and watch that growth journey a little bit more. That's also where I met my partners that I now work with at Left Lane and where we really began to build out the strategy that we then ultimately spun out of Insight and, and raised our own funds on the back of. And what was that like in August 2019 when you guys first started? What were those early conversations like? What was going on inside your head as you, you know, decided to leave this you know, big, very, very well-known and respected firm to, to do your own thing? We heard no a lot. I think you know, I had been at BCG and then had moved over to Insight, which was a really established firm by the time that we were working there. And so going from that to the one room we work above a Chipotle in, uh, in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, and just running around the country, pitching anybody we could get in front of and, and being told no a lot, I think really taught me a lot of empathy, frankly, with the founders that we've had the chance to work with. It was also very exciting, right? Because we had a strategy, we believed in it, but going through the process of really productizing that, articulating it, defending it, you know, I think we did 2000 pitch meetings to raise our first fund and being able to have the strategy stand up to that and then get the chance to really own it and put it to work has been just an incredibly rewarding experience. And can you paint a picture for us on the, the thesis of the fund and fund size and maybe some of the investments that you've made so far that listeners may have heard of? Sure. So thesis of left lane is simple. It's really that the consumer SMB mid-market economy is digitizing at a rate that has never really been seen before. You know, if you look at consumers, you look at small businesses, the overall penetration of digital first companies for most of the things that these buyers are spending on is still relatively low, right? Now, I don't think that's a particularly revolutionary statement in and of itself, 
But where we started to focus ourselves was around a couple things. You have this digitalization format. You also had a capital market environment where most venture capital growth equity investors were flocking towards the absolute upper enterprise end of the spectrum from a tech buyer perspective. So we saw all of these great companies that were building businesses for consumers, for small businesses, for for really kind of mid-market type companies. And we didn't see people, other funds focusing on it nearly to the extent that we thought there was an opportunity. Now, the question for us then was, okay, how do you approach these demographics, which historically venture funds had avoided a bit more? How do you approach them with a strategy that you think can win on a repeatable basis? And where we started was, while we're not explicitly software investors, let's take all of the things that make software so powerful, such as long-term customer retention, high gross margin, scalable products. Let's take those things and let's look for them in these enormous markets of kind of consumer through SMB style companies. So that's the thesis. Stage for us is really once we start to see product market fit. So once a company has some tens, hundreds of customers where we understand how they're using the product, if they like the product or not. What that practically looks like is five to 50, 60, $70 million entry checks for us. Really host C or early series A up through early series C is, uh, is where we're focused. As you mentioned, we spun out 2019. We've raised two funds, the first with a $630 million fund one. And then the second, which we closed, I guess a little over a year ago now was a $1.4 billion fund too. What's the sweet spot? I see that a lot on Twitter and just in other podcasts. They say like the the perfect fund size. Do you think there is like a perfect fund size? I think it depends on what your strategy is. I think for us, we felt really comfortable that with this fund size, we could use the playbook that we have throughout our careers of this sort of breakout or inflection growth point of a company where, again, it has product market fit. We still see a lot of headroom from there. We wanted to make sure we could have some tens of positions while still really running after that playbook. So I think fund size, we feel very comfortable, you know, even as we moved from 630 million to 1.4 billion, that our strategy was largely staying the same. It was simply a few more logos going after that same stage and thesis. How have you seen venture evolved since you first launched then in 2019? Well, it's gone through, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, it's gone through a really interesting trajectory where in 19, when we spun out, you were in the beginnings of this upward inflection point and then capital deployment pace across 20 and 2021 obviously accelerated a ton. Competition went up. The timeline between Series A to Series B for a company was getting more and more compressed. And now we're sort of on the other side of that as deal flow and and total capital deployed has gone down for a variety of reasons and capital is just less available. And so earlier on in our fund lifecycle, both for investors and for companies, so much of the name of the game was capital raising, capital deployment, and aggressive forward-facing growth. And now we're at a point where it's really much more about what you do as a founder or as a fund with that capital How do you get creative to extend runway while still trying to take advantage of the opportunity that's in front of you? So it's really been a mindset shift that's been an interesting one to participate in. And then when did you start to raise fund two? How early into fund one? Because that's something else I hear a lot about in terms of timing. Sure. So we started raising fund two or having initial conversations when we were most of the way through our initial deployment into new companies for fund one. So like a lot of funds, we always make sure that we're holding back sufficient reserve to continue supporting our companies. 
And so once we hit the threshold where we felt like, okay, we're probably nearing our last few new investments in Fund One, that's when we began having conversations with current LPs, new LPs around Fund Two. And can you share a few of your portfolio companies that maybe listeners would have heard of? And this can be B2B or, or consumer as well. Sure. So on the B2C side, so our first two investments out of Left Lane Capital, one was a company called Go Student based in Vienna, Austria, which is digital tutoring services for students who are K through 12. Started in Vienna, Austria, has now expanded to some tens of countries and really been a global story and raised several hundred million euros and gone on to be quite successful. The second company that we invested in out of left line was a company called M1 Finance out of Chicago, which is a effectively a finance super app for self-directed investors here in the US, where you know they've got a tremendous amount of automation supporting their product and really just help people build and automatically manage their investment portfolios, as well as having banking services and a few other products that they offer. So those were our first two investments. They went on to raise hundreds of millions of dollars each fairly quickly after we invested and and went off to to the races from there. On the B2B side, we have a number of investments as well. I'm on the board of Wayflyer out of Dublin, Ireland, which is a fintech business for e-commerce merchants, as well as a company called Yokoi out of Switzerland, which is an expense management and uh, digital financial software company for uh, mid-market businesses in, in Europe. So wide variety of businesses, but we've been fortunate to have a few that have scaled really quickly. And you mentioned Europe there a lot. Are you primarily focused on Europe or did it just happen to be those examples? So geography standpoint for us, we've historically been about 30 to 40% of our portfolio has been invested in Europe. It's always been a focus for us. We actually have two main offices, our headquarters in, in Brooklyn, but then we have an office in Petrovia in London. And so we have seven folks working out of that office, feet on the ground. We always feel like the European ecosystem is important to our differentiation historically and certainly going forward. How is the European ecosystem different from the U.S.? Is it that much different or is it essentially the same now? I'd say five to eight years ago, there was a much bigger gap in terms of overall capital availability between the U.S. and Europe. I'd say over the past 18 to 24 months, we started to see that shift a bit where a lot of funds, even U.S. funds, would have dedicated European strategies and offices. A lot of the European seed funds and earlier stage funds matured to a point where they were raising growth vehicles. And so we've seen capital availability uh, really go up in Europe over the past couple of years as the ecosystems continued to mature. And so there's it's been a, an interesting rise and shift over there. But I'd say a lot of the same fundamental needs, whether you're selling to consumers or selling to businesses, are the same. And so there's opportunities to build more localized businesses in all of the geographies. And why do you think founders choose to work with Left Lane? So let's say that you know they're presented, or I'm a founder, I'm presented you know two equal term sheets, one's from you know, another major VC firm, one's from Left Lane. Why would someone choose Left Lane and why do they choose Left Lane? I think there's a couple reasons. For one, we were an early group and view ourselves as really specialists in that consumer, prosumer, SMB landscape, where if you're building, a, whether it's a software company or a different type of company for those end customers, our hope is that the decade plus in all of my and my partner's careers where we've been investing pretty exclusively into these types of businesses has given us a level of pattern recognition and matching, understanding, and then just networks, frankly, of folks from you know the leading companies in this space who, who went on to mature their businesses and have great exits or take them public. 
our hope is that that really shines through in our conversations. And that's not just with the four partners, right? We're just had a number of people start with this today. We're up to 40 total team members now, probably about 27, 28 of which are on the investment team. Our hope is that that expertise is present throughout all 28 of those people, whether you're talking to one of the co-founders, you're talking to one of our newest team members, that all that expertise really shines through. I'd say that's one reason. I'd say the second reason is the way we approach data. So every deal that we do, pretty typically, we are getting very deep into data before we even send an LOI or a term sheet. So that's pulling transaction level data, usage event level data, extraordinarily granular information. A lot of times it's hundreds of thousands or millions of rows of information. We're then cutting that and playing it back to founders that we may work with in a way that hopefully they find additive, right? I mean, we get to learn about the company, obviously, but then, you know, we're playing back all of the findings in the context of that pattern matching. And then the third thing, which, you know, doesn't look great on a slide in a pitch deck, but I think rings true is we're building our company right alongside the founders that we're working with. I mean, I, I told the, the brief story of our initial WeWork, but we're at this point where there's a tremendous amount of alignment here. And we hope that translates to just a huge amount of hustle where, you know, if we hear about an interesting company, I'd have no problem. No one on the team would have a, a problem of heading to JFK to catch the midnight flight over and meeting them for dinner tomorrow, right? And I think there's an attitudinal thing there that you can't put on paper necessarily, but hopefully if you talk to people about us, we'll shine through. What do you think it takes, or what's the most like important skill for a VC to have today to be successful? I'd say it's a few things. I think hustle, it's a competitive market. I mean, there's a lot of dry powder and, and folks are, are working hard, I think, and a, a willingness to just stay up later, get up earlier, go the extra mile for your founders, I think is really important. I also think independent thinking. If you look at, unsurprisingly, some of the categories over the past few years, there's been kind of booms and busts of huge amounts of capital flowing in. And then some of those companies ultimately ending up, ending up being overvalued. So I think knowing what your fundamental thesis is, even if it's going against the grain, which I know is a cliche, but I do think it's really important in terms of driving outsized long-term returns. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. What about for founders? What are those skills that you're typically looking at when you're evaluating if you're going to do a deal with them or not? The first thing, and it sounds obvious, but the first thing that shines through in a founder conversation is just the clarity of communication or, or the lack thereof. You know, in a typical pitch meeting, I don't know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, however long it is, it's so much easier and more productive to get to the next level of conversation if we can both clearly articulate what we do, what the problem is that we're solving and why we think it's special. I remember back to when we were starting our fund, those 2000 pitch meetings, probably the first 200 were not very good at all. <laughs> we went back and reviewed a bit of how we were talking about things and actually wrote it out in practice. And we realized we were missing about 80% of the stuff that we thought was special about what we were building. And so just that simple act of really practicing that clarity and getting it down from just a fundraising perspective may sound obvious, but I think it's really important. From what's more important in terms of running the company, I think a couple characteristics stand out. 
The first one is prioritization. Do you know where you're going and are you able to say no to things that could be distracting? And are you able to communicate what those priorities are to your team? When I think about the folks who have been most successful that we've had the chance to work with, they always know every board meeting starts with, here are our three or five North Star efforts that the entirety of the organization is going after. And where I knew it was really strong was after the board meeting, I'd walk around the office and and catch up with different team members. And they all knew what those three or five things were by heart. They were on the whiteboards in the office, on the TV screens and monitors that were hanging in the office. And there was complete clarity around it. And then the, the last thing I'll say is just having a really fundamental understanding of the numbers of your business and using those numbers to help drive decision making. Now, I think it's a clearly a fine line. You don't want to be so deep in the weeds that you run into analysis paralysis. But when I think about some of the strongest folks that we've had the chance to work with in any conversation, they know what unit economics are. If it's a sales organization, they know how many reps, they know where pipeline sits, they know what their conversion rates are, what commit is for the end of the month or end of the quarter, because they're constantly going through the exercise of allocating their own capital as CEOs, right? And so knowing internally what's productive and efficient for you, what's not, and constantly kind of moving those dials, the strongest people we've had the chance to work with really shine there. I'm sure it's probably hard to put a number to it, but if you had to guess, how many pitches have you sat through over the course of your career? Oh, that is a really difficult thing to put a number around. Certainly north of 5,000, if I'm doing my math correctly. So thousands of pitch meetings, I think we can say. Are there any specific or like common red flags that you see, or maybe not even red flags, but just things that founders do in the deck or in the pitch that just drive you crazy and you, you wish you could just tell them directly, hey, cut it out, stop doing that? The single biggest thing for me is downplaying your competition and not having a concrete answer to what is your moat and how do you expect to have to be differentiated long term. It's much more compelling to me when a founder can sit and say, no, look, I know that we have these legacy competitors who have been doing this for 10 or 12 years. Here's the concrete reasons we're better than them. I know that there are these other you know, venture-backed players and a couple of them I respect. A couple of them were better because of this reason against the ones who are closest to us. We plan on winning for ABC reason. It's much more compelling to me when I hear that as opposed to something like, oh, there's no one who's even close to us, or the legacy guys just won't be able to keep up in generalities there. It can actually, though I, I get the temptation to do that because you don't want to necessarily bring any attention to your competitors. Our goal and our hope is if we're doing a deal you know, with that team of 28 people, we're speaking to everybody in the space anyway, and we have a sense of it. So it's just much better, I think, when founders address it head on. Yeah, it's shocking the amount of you know podcasts we do with founders, and we always ask them about the competitive landscape. Like 30, 40, maybe 50% of them say, like, oh, there are no competitors. And like, I don't really think that's true. Like, even if the competitor's a, a spreadsheet, like there has to be a competitor, I think, in most cases. Yeah, absolutely. How have you seen the relationship between founders and investors and board members change over the last, let's say, 12 months? And for like more context there, I remember a few years ago, there was a lot of talk like, all cash is the same. I think there were some funds that were doing deals where like they didn't want to be on the board. Then the other day, I was talking with a, a good friend of mine who founded a unicorn company. They, they'd raised a few hundred million. And he was like, I feel like I'm just fucked right now. He's like, I'm going to the board and the board is 
no help. The investors are no help. Like, yeah, we got cash and that was great, but they're not able to help us navigate any of this stuff and give us any advice. Are you seeing that shift happen as well? Like, And are you seeing founders really rely on the board now and, and rely on VCs more than they were like 12 to 24 months ago? There's absolutely been a shift. I think scarcity of capital and difficulty of conversations drive some of that fundamental shift. And I've seen as the capital markets have dried up a bit, I've seen investors and founders react in a number of different ways. I think the safest and most secure feeling thing to do 12 months ago was really to run to break even. And so I heard in a lot of board meetings and a lot of conversations with investors, people steering companies towards cutting burn, do whatever it is you can do to show you know cash flow positivity right now and truly control your own destiny. Where we've worked with our companies and, and where I think the most interesting opportunities are right now is actually those times where companies and the boards made the decision together to selectively continue to be aggressive and take advantage of some of the opportunities that present themselves. I actually give you an example from a company that I work with. It's a business called Arc Technologies based out of the Bay Area. And Arc's really the future of startup finance. And we first invested in them in early 2022. At that point, they had always had the vision of being a holistic, technology-driven, full-stack banking suite for their customers and for tech startups. When we first started working with them in early 22, they were mostly focused and what was mostly in market was a non-dilutive financing product. So revenue-based financing for new technology businesses. Now, they had always had the vision of launching treasury and banking and investment services, et cetera. But we, like the rest of the market, saw the capital start to dry up and people start to get a bit more conservative. ARC and their CEO, Don, made a great choice in that moment to actually continue selectively going after the opportunity that they saw, which was to build that, again, holistic financial suite. To the extent that, you know, by this spring, they had launched a fully operational treasury product and had great momentum with that. They had launched some investing products for businesses to earn a yield on their cash and had done a fantastic job with that. And, you know, they actually just went formally live on, on product hunt, I think, last week and ended up being the top ranked fintech, which is a really good placement and great opportunity for them. And I think that goes back to that decision of, okay, where do we see the market moving? Yes, capital's getting a little more difficult. Let's have the tough conversations. And then the Don and the team, the CEO, making the decision to continue investing in part of their vision that they thought was going to be differentiated and leaning into it. And it ultimately ended up working out. It's those conversations around, do we cut? Where do we continue growing? That aren't easy. And there have been other conversations where you know, the board and the company ultimately agree, hey, we need to make the tough decision. We need to reduce our force. We need to unfortunately lay people off. But I think those conversations were things that just weren't happening with the same frequency two and a half, three years ago. And I think there's real opportunity for the people who get those conversations right right now. What are your views when it comes to category creation? Do you have founders that come to you often and say, hey, this is a category creation play? Does that happen a lot? And what are your general views when it comes to creating new categories? We certainly have founders come and make that pitch. And I think it really comes down to a pitch by pitch basis, right? And then doing a lot of our own customer diligence, customer ethnography to try to get some understanding of where is the actual initial need for this category? And then for, you know, as I mentioned, we're really only investing post-product market fit. So once we know that some people are using it or liking it, 
going deeper than just seeing, hey, yes, these customers stick around. It's having the qualitative interviews or a lot of our consumer businesses, for example, or SMB businesses, we launch customer surveys as part of the diligence. So it's getting much deeper into what is this? And, you know, do we see, even though it's a new category, the type of behavior where this new product's becoming part of the end customer's operating system, for lack of a better word. So we, when we see that, we get really excited. We also, just to be blunt, we know if you're creating a new category, unless there's real virality in the product, it's probably going to be expensive to evangelize. And so just being honest with founders on, hey, here's how much capital we think you should take. And then on an ongoing basis, just making sure that you continue to stay well capitalized and, and can evangelize where needed, which is just can be expensive and difficult. And in terms of go-to-market, are there any specific things that you see founders struggle with a lot? I think the biggest question is, as you're going, and I'll speak in, in B2B terms here in a moment, is when do you know it's time to step on the gas? And then what is that capital allocation decision of how much to invest when and how gradual you ultimately need to be? It's a tricky decision to make. It's a tricky one, especially when you have longer sales cycles. So your feedback loops on new sales reps aren't necessarily uh, the strongest. And what we do in, with companies and, and how we advise founders in, in that instance is always, even if you only have two, three people on your go-to-market team, always really understand and be intellectually honest with yourself about where unit economics sit. Set up the reporting, set up everything for conversion funnels, for pipeline earlier than you think you need to so that you have some of that infrastructure available to begin guiding those decisions. Because the real risk is you go from two or three sales reps to eight to 10 to 20 is that, you know, if it's a long sales cycle, because you have a one year feedback loop on whether or not it's working, you just run the risk of burning a lot of money and putting yourself in a disadvantageous situation. So building enough of a reporting and financial infrastructure so that you know how things are going, you're tracking the onboarding of your sales reps, you know what some of those milestones are, even when it's early, so that you can put your foot on the brakes or take it off the gas when you need to, I think is the biggest thing to be thinking about is you're going from that like early series A to series B and beyond stage of the go-to-market side. And final questions here before we wrap up. For the B2B founders listening in, what types of opportunities in the B2B world are you excited about? Any specific markets that you're exploring right now or, or anything else just so if founders are listening in, they, they know they should get in touch? I think there's a couple things. This idea of capital scarcity and not just capital scarcity for startups, but capital scarcity throughout the entire market for consumers for SMB, I think is a really interesting one. And so we've been digging in a lot on the B2B side and things like embedded fintech, things that will help solve some of these issues. I'm on the board of a company called Clerky, for example, which is an embedded debt repayment network to help folks pay down their debt ultimately a bit easier, therefore making the whole system more efficient for folks or even somebody like an ARC, right, which is increasing access to capital and, and help solving those problems. I think that's one area that I continue to be interested in, just like everybody else were in the process of exploring AI, right? And exploring it through two lenses, first and most obviously, where do we think that there's opportunity? I think in the B2B world, it's likely in more verticalized use cases is, is what we're spending a little bit more time on. But then also, what are some opportunities that we think are actually a bit more immune to AI and immune from the potential disruption there? So we've been spending some more time there. And then finally, I mean, I mentioned this idea of us really backing the digitization of the consumer. A lot of the ends, a lot of the go-to-markets there to reach those consumers will be B2B to C. 
right? And so it does look like a B2B startup that you're investing in. We've particularly seen a lot of interesting things in healthcare and digital services and products that are going on to be sold, whether it's through payers or through employers as a benefit. So really anything that's digitization of the consumer one way or another is kind of the third leg of the stool that I'd look for. But overall, you know, if you're building something interesting, you've got some tens, hundreds of customers and, and have confidence that they love your product and they're sticking around and continuing to use it. We'd love to talk to you. Final question here. And you're recording this July 10th, 2023. So 12 months from today, what does the world of venture look like? I would not be surprised if activity levels are somewhat similar to where they are today. I think you will see continued investment into a lot of the different AI applications that are gaining a lot of steam. I think what will be somewhat different in a year than where we are today, I think you see some of that capital scarcity begin to rear its head as companies need to make harder decisions at later growth stages of, do we continue to stay profitable? Do we take on more capital to reinflect? And how do we think about exits? I think over the next 12 months, that's going to be an even bigger question among a lot of venture portfolios than it is today. Amazing. Dan, we are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. Before we do, if any founders listening and do want to get in touch, where should they go? LinkedIn's usually the best. I believe we have our emails on our website. To be honest, our sincere hope is that if you're building something that's growing fast and exciting, that you've already got an email from a left lane team member in your inbox. And so check that and, and get back to us. And we'd love to talk to you. Awesome. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Brett. Appreciate it. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 